Hi, and welcome to the Courtney Turner Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney, and I'm super passionate about moving and thinking. On this show, we are going to dive into all things health, fitness, personal development, lifestyle, and political sociocultural. I've always been fascinated by people, and I love learning from the experiences and stories of others. This has been a treat for me, and I hope this is enjoyable and useful for you. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or any way that I can make this a better experience for you, please don't hesitate to reach out. Hello, welcome to the Courtney Turner Podcast. I'm here today with Kit Perez. She is a counterintelligence analyst and deception analyst and author, and she has an activism class. She's a liberty activist. How are you doing today? Awesome. Awesome. Uh, the background looks really <laughs> awesome. It is yes, pretty cold here today, but uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so how are things going? Not too shabby. Um, just watching, you know, after the books come out, I've been able to answer some questions for people that have reached out directly and said, hey, I read this. What did you mean? And stuff like that. And I, I like to make myself available for stuff like that if people have questions. Yeah. Um, I've noticed, obviously, readership on the Shepherd scale where I write articles. That's kind of jumped up a little bit from the book as well. So it's, it's kind of cool because it means people are really thinking about what they're doing in terms of resistance instead of just running out and, oh, let's go do a rally. Let's go do this. I think people are starting to back up and go, okay, what is it exactly that we're doing and how can we do it effectively? And that's really all I was trying to do. Which is really, really awesome. What is some of the feedback that you've been getting or questions from the book? There's been, obviously there's always going to be some negative feedback. Um, you know, some people claim that I'm, I'm using this. Sorry. Um, some people claim that I'm using it to justify cowardice, that I'm trying to give people a reason to not get involved. Interesting. I, what, what did they mean by that? Why would they say that? Because I tell people don't just run out and go do whatever's fashionable. Don't be loud and obnoxious and really what I'm basically telling people to do is stop doing everything you've been doing for the last 20 years because you're doing it wrong. And when people are emotionally invested in what they're doing, that's a hard thing to say, to say, okay, listen, I get that you've got all of this resume, so to speak, of political action, right? but I want you to throw it out. And I want you to start over and let's go all the way back to the beginning to where you start talking to yourself within yourself. What is it I'm trying to do here? Why am I doing it? What do I believe? And that's, that's kind of a hard thing because if you're already six miles down the road and somebody says you missed your exit, you know, it's, there's a lot of pride involved in that, but there's also been some positive feedback as well, where people who do get it, People mm-hmm. who are saying, hey, I couldn't figure out why I felt compelled to do all this stuff. But now I understand that about myself and I can kind of redirect where I'm finding the validation. And just the psychological aspect of it is really, for me, it's the most fun because especially with the stuff going on right now, people, they are emotional. They want to get involved in things and they feel invested And separating that from, is it the right action? Is it the right time? Am I doing the right thing? Mm -hmm. That's the hard part. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I want to back up a little bit for people who might not know what a counterintelligence analyst is or deception analyst. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So you've got intelligence and counterintelligence. So intelligence is I'm trying to get your info. Counterintelligence is I'm going to make sure you can't. That is the simplest way I can think of, you know, and there's obviously multiple disciplines and, and facets within that, but that's kind of what it boils down to. Um, in terms of deception analyst, what I do is I look at people's language, um, whether it be in a criminal case, a civil deposition, when I'm talking to victims or anything, even hiring context for businesses. And I can tell you by looking at someone's language, are they lying? What are they lying about? Um, what is the truth? And how can you get to the truth by asking certain questions based on what they've already given you? So it's it's kind of, it's a lot of fun. It's kind of like a superpower at first, once you start getting good at it and you realize how much more you see and how much open the world is. Mm-hmm. But then it kind of gets a little tiresome after a while <laughs> because you don't want to know some of the things you're seeing. But then after that, it kind of evens out. And now, now it just, it's just becomes a second nature thing after a while. Wow. How interesting. What got you, how did you get to involved in that kind of work? Like what was your pal? That led you well, there? I started out, it's funny because I, I really wanted to go, I was working for Boeing at the time and I wanted to be an interrogator and I wanted to be a contractor interrogator in Iraq. And so I went to school, I went to finish my bachelor's degree in intelligence. But while I was there, I started looking around and realizing that the people who were in my classes, all of whom worked for government agencies or were in law enforcement of some type, they were very casual about the concept of constitutional rights. And they didn't seem to really like that wasn't a driving force for them. They were more interested in, well, we have to deal with this kind of person and we have to get this kind of person out of the place where they can talk. And it was really a weird thing because I wouldn't have expected that. Yeah. And when I would, in the class discussion, start talking about, hey, you guys, you know, people have a right to speak and people have a right to do this. Or they have, you know, just because they buy a firearm doesn't make them an extremist and all this. And, and I was shouted down very quickly. Well, yes, people have rights, but, or yes, they have a right to speak, but we don't want them saying this. And it really wasn't, it was very disillusioning for me. And it kind of resulted in me having a little crisis of what is it that I believe? Mm -hmm. And how does it fit into the grander scheme of what I call myself as a patriot or as a supporter of, of certain entities or agencies or groups or what have you? And by the time I finished my bachelor's, I realized there's not really a lot of people that have that skill set that are actually patriots in the sense that they're using their skill set for that. And so I thought, well, might as well go on and do a grad and finish that and get more specialized in what I can do. And that kind of led into some additional training after grad school. And over time, I just been working in that sphere, Mm -hmm. teaching people, Hey, you know, everybody, everybody involved in activism thinks of the federal government is this boogeyman, like, you know, being called a fed is the worst of the insults. And 
you're an infiltrator. And that's, that's a big deal to, to throw that accusation out. Mm-hmm. But most people don't really understand how an infiltration works, how it's done, what kind of damage it can do. You know, they have very specific, oh, well, if we get infiltrated, it's because they want to entrap us and put us all in jail. That's not necessarily the case. And so my work now focuses on teaching people how to do it effectively so that number one, you don't have to worry about infiltration mm-hmm. as much. And two, how to recognize it when it happens and how to stop that damage before it tears your group apart. Right. So when you're talking about infiltration um, of groups, like what types of groups specifically are you referring Anybody to? Anybody who, anytime you have a group that's doing something that other groups don't like, there is a potential for someone who doesn't like you to get into your group and screw it up. That's just, and it doesn't really matter. It doesn't always have to be that you're in some kind of militia. Or it, it's not even about that. It can be something as simple as you're raising money for a cause I don't like. You're against abortion. I'm for abortion. And so I want to derail your efforts. It can be anything. And like I say, it's not always the government doing it. It's not always, um, it doesn't always have arrest or imprisonment as its end goal. It might just be to foment strife internally between the members and cause it to break apart organically. So there's a lot of stuff on the spectrum that a lot of people don't understand. Yeah. Um, so you're talking about kind of like cognitive infiltration type. There's all different kinds. Yeah. It can be financial. It can be, and I think I was telling you uh, earlier, there's a guy I know who got into a leftist group and because he had IT skills, they put him in charge of some databases of donors and whatnot, and he corrupted all their data. That's an infiltration. Sure, of course. (laughs) And then, of course, they threw him out because of his incompetence and said, well, you know, we can't even fix this. Well, that was kind of the point. Wow. Yeah. So there's there's a lot you can do and there's a lot. Well, you're freezing. You froze for a second. Sorry. Oh, so did you. (laughs) I froze too. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. It keeps. Yeah, it's not telling me that my uh, signal is unstable. Interesting. I have it plugged into the Ethernet, too. Hmm. All right, well. There we go. Okay. So are we, are we back? There we are. Oh, we're back. We're good. Okay. Yeah. Did you, did you ask me something while I was frozen? Yeah, yeah. So you were, <laughs> yeah, so you were saying how, uh, you know, like you were talking about the the guy infiltrating the the group and uh, corrupting all the data, and they right. it was unrecoverable, which is definitely problematic. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I'm curious about like who does like you said that it's not always the government. So like, who are infiltrators, and how can people be aware of them and how can you protect them yourself from them? And then how could you possibly uh, become one? <laughs> well, those four parts are an eight hour class. <laughs> so Sorry. it's not, not a short answer. Um, no, that's fine. So some of the different types you've got, obviously you've got the kind that people understand and, and expect the, 
hey, can we get you to do something illegal? Or can we facilitate you doing something illegal so that we can arrest you? There's obviously that kind. There's also the kind where it's maybe not specific to a group. It's more toward a larger movement nationally where someone sees a business opportunity Mm -hmm. and they see a a way to get donations for themselves. That happens a lot. In fact, it's happening right now with several different people and they build up and they actually use a lot of different cult strategies and behaviors to, I guess, uh, they leverage people's need to feel accepted. They leverage people's liking of being in a group Mm -hmm. and they use that against them to suck money out of them. Kind of like a televangelist or, you know, any cult leader. So there's those kinds, there's, you know, the financial ones, there's the ones where maybe somebody, like I said earlier, just disagrees with what you believe in or what you're trying to do. So they show up at your events and they fly a Nazi flag or they, they do something, you know, there's the, the one-time show kind of things where they just show up to your event and try to derail it or try to make you look stupid or discredit you. But then you have the more long-term things where they actually do get into your group and then they can do all kinds of fun things. And there's just, there's all different kinds, um, to answer the second part of that, you know, how do you, how do you guard against it? Or, well, first you have to be able to recognize it, know what it looks like, understand the different types, Mm -hmm. because if you're constantly looking for, this is what an infiltration looks like, well, you're going to miss this one and this one and this one, because you don't know what to expect. Sure. And that's, probably the foundational part is understanding the different types and what they look like. How do they start? Um, But understanding yourself, how can you personally be leveraged? Mm -hmm. How can the people around you be leveraged? You have to understand that about them and work together to ensure that, Hey, we all know each other's weaknesses. We all know where we're weak. We all know where the holes are. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to watch yours you keep me honest and let me know when I'm kind of open for and vulnerable to be leveraged and we'll, you know, go from there. Right. Right. Um, so you're saying like, know yourself, know your strength, know your weaknesses, yes. um, and then know your group. So in what would some things you would advise people to do when they're forming a group? Well, The first thing is before you even make a group, Mm -hmm. you know, people tend to have this overarching goal. We're going to take our country back. And then they go, let me go find a whole bunch of people who also want to take our country back. And then they get their group and then they're like, sweet, what should we do? (laughs) And it's completely backwards. If I'm going to make a group, the first thing I need to ask myself is what is it I want to do? And I don't mean some slogan. I'm talking about what can I do that I can actually achieve. So you're looking at smart goals and then, and, and because you're looking at smart goals and things that you actually, because think about it, you don't want to trust an organization that would go out of business if they actually achieved what they're trying to do. Right. So you look at, you know, I I hate to pick on them, but you look at some of these breast cancer charities and they're like, oh, we're working to end breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Well, what happens to your million dollar paycheck for your higher ups if you actually achieve that? Well, it all goes away. So they're actually motivated to fail. 
And mm-hmm. you don't want to do that with a group. So you want to set actual achievable goals, first of all, mm-hmm. and those are going to be found either locally or county level. Anything mm-hmm. past that, you can't, you can't control the outcome. And you need too many people that you're not going to know, you're not going to understand. And now you can't control the message of your group. Right. And you're more susceptible to, I mean, if, if I'm going out to do something with three, four or five people who I know intimately, you know, psychologically, spiritually, emotionally, that's going to be a controllable thing. I know how they're going to respond in a specific situation. I know everybody knows their job and they do it. If I throw it out there to the public and say, oh, I'm having a rally, everybody come. When Nazi guy shows up, that's it. I'm done. Right. It doesn't matter that I can't stand Nazis. It doesn't matter that I don't believe that, that I disagree with it viscerally. He showed up. The media got footage of it. I'm done. And so that's the first thing I would tell people when making a group is understand what it is you want to do. And then you start looking at, okay, what kind of people do I need to pull that off? Do I need a guy who's really good at radios? Do I need a guy who's good at um, communication, PR? People instantly think in training of terms of we got to all run out in the woods and, and, you know, get our guns out and our camo and do this. Actually, what you really need is public relations training. You need writing training. You need propaganda. You need people who know how to talk to the public. And how to bring in allies for your side. So um, it's all backwards. How it gets done is, is really backwards. And if, you, if you're constantly looking at quantity, and you're constantly looking, we got to grow, 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 get more people. You're never going to have quality. Right, for sure. So, yeah. So do you advise people to do uh, like smaller groups or yes. like more focused? Yeah. No more than 10. Absolutely no more than 10. Now that doesn't mean that you can't work with other groups, mm-hmm. but there's also the security aspect. Right. What if one person goes rogue and does something horrible? Do you want your 200 person group painted with that brush? No, Right. but you can set it up in such a way that say you and I, and one other person have a group, there's three of us. Mm-hmm. You know, of some other person who also you're, you're part of another group with two other people and they have two other people. You set it up that way. You can have a massive network of resources and information and capability. But if I do something stupid and I go to jail, mm-hmm. who have I put in danger? Sure. I put you and the other person in danger, but you have now protected everybody else because I don't know what you have going on. Right. Right. So that that's one way to protect yourself. Sure. Sure. Wow. And then do you advise people uh, infiltrating other groups? Yes. If, if you have, so I don't randomly think people show up at their local, you know, communist party meeting, but it takes a a specific kind of person. Uh It takes somebody who can compartmentalize very much. So because you can't be a lot of times you can't be yourself. If you're doing it online, you have to create an entirely different person. 
-hmm. If you're doing it in person, sometimes you have to create a different person that you're going to be, but Mm -hmm. we default to the person we are. And so I tell people, if you decide that you want to go check out the opposition, so to speak, (laughs) what you want to do is not use things that belong to you. Because if I, for instance, let's say that I'm going to make a persona that my name is Dawn. Mm -hmm. Dawn's going to go to some communist party stuff, or she's going to go check out this group (laughs) or whatever. Well, Dawn can't take my phone because I own that phone. That doesn't belong to Dawn. Mm. Same thing with my car. I can't use my car because I'm being Dawn. And it sounds kind of stupid, but it's the easiest way to keep it separate in your head. Right. Dawn doesn't dress like me. Dawn doesn't talk like me. But sometimes the easiest way to do it, depending on how well known you already are, is to literally just be yourself and go in and say, Hey, I don't know anything about this, but you know, I'm really disillusioned with where I'm at. And I'm interested in hearing about what you guys have to do. Um, obviously you don't want to go in trying to be something completely different. You know, I'm from Northern Wisconsin. I'm not going to go in there pretending I'm from Tennessee because with my luck, there would be somebody from Tennessee there and that would take 30 seconds, but (laughs) you, you want to be as truthful as possible until you can't. Right. And so there's, it's a really, it's, it's not something that you can really go over in five minutes, but there's a whole thing about it. And, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's not something I can do anymore, but I can teach other people how to do it. And why is it not something you can do anymore? Uh, cause my face is already on the internet. My name's already been on the SL SPLC website. I'm not somebody who can go undercover, so to speak, unless it's on an online and online, I can, right. but not, uh, not in person at all. I just, I'm just me in person. I just, if I want to go, I go and right. <laughs> so when you, you were writing your book, what were some of your main objectives in writing that? I wanted to So when I I co-wrote the first book with Claire Wolf called Basics of Resistance, we really wanted to answer the question, Mm -hmm. what is the average Joe supposed to do? Right. You know, maybe they're not already involved in all this political stuff, but they're looking around and they're going, wait a minute, I don't like this, but I don't know what to do. And so we answered that basic question. And then with Mindset of Resistance, I wanted to do two things. One, if that first Joe took the stuff from basics and and went and started doing rallies and started doing this and started doing that. I wanted to kind of put the brakes on a little bit and go, okay, let's go back. And let's, if you want to do the more advanced stuff, you Mm got to do this first. Right. And so get that foundation set. But once you have that, look at all these other doors that are now open to you, other things that you can get involved in. And if you're going to do it, if you're going to put your time and effort, you're going to put your emotional investment in it, do it right. Be effective at it because I mean, what's the point? You can spend a hundred hours volunteering at some effort for what to say you did it. Mm. If you didn't accomplish anything, what's the point? Right. Of course. So, yeah. So, so you were hoping that it would, uh, uh, enhance the effectiveness for people. Right. And, and, 
because I think there comes a point, and I know what happened with me because I used to be really involved in the the rallies. I would help organize events and do all these loud things and give the speeches and all that fun stuff. And it was fun. And it is emotionally charging. You know, you leave these rallies and you're like, yes, I'm going to go out for my cause. (laughs) But when you look back, Mm -hmm. some of the biggest things that I helped organize did nothing. We, we protested a, a universal background check law that was recently put into effect in Washington a few years ago. And we went and we defied the law right there on the Capitol steps. And we did all this stuff and we filmed it and we showed that the media was lying about how many people were there and what we were doing. And at the end of the day, here we are seven, eight, well, nine years later, the law's still there. Yeah. So really, was it fun? Absolutely. Did it (laughs) fulfill me in in an emotional way? Yes. Did it get anything done? No. So now looking back on some of those things that I've done previously, I'm recalibrating and saying, okay, how could I have done that better? And how can I take that knowledge from my mistakes, my lessons learned, so to speak, and extrapolate that for people who are also coming up who maybe say, Hey, you know, I'm sick of just going to rallies. I want to do something that actually works. Right. Yeah. And to be more effective. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I totally, I totally get that. I think, uh, especially right now, people are so overwhelmed. Um, mm-hmm. There's just, there's so many battles to fight. Um, yes. And uh, so people don't know where to begin. They don't know what to do and they want to feel like they're doing something. Right. Uh, and, you know, they hear like an event and, and people are also so isolated right now. So, uh, you know, less so than maybe last year, but people are still much more isolated than, than previously. Um and so I think that element of being able to congregate with others who might be more similarly minded um, and feel like they're making a difference is so uh, is so prevalent. But uh, unfortunately, some people have taken tremendous risks to do these things. Like you said, you were there defying law and, you know, making your statement and, you know, people are taking risks and making sacrifices. Uh, but the effect is not necessarily what they were hoping for. So, right. And I mean, you could, there have been guys who went to jail mm -hmm. after some admittedly ill-advised, stupid and poorly run event. Mm -hmm. It's a whole other issue, Uh but you know, they spend a couple of years in jail. What did you accomplish? Right. And while you were in jail, who was taking care of your family? Who was having to donate to your everything? Right. And, And what did you, what did you accomplish? And it's not enough to come out of jail and say, well, I was in jail for the cause. Whoop-dee-doo. Right. Think of what you could have accomplished had you not been in jail. Yeah. So there's that as well. Now that doesn't mean, and this is where we get back into that negative feedback where people go, well, you just don't want to do anything. You don't No, There are things you should do. There are things you can do. And it's all about risk assessment. It's all about understanding the ramifications of what you're doing two, three, four orders out and the long-term effects. Well, maybe it'll do something good for me personally, and it'll make me feel good, but it's going to hurt my cause instead of help it. And what's the point if you're going to be running around hurting everybody else who's trying to work on the same thing you are, 
for what? For your own personal ego? And that's what a lot of it comes down to. Right, right. And yeah, that makes sense. It's understandable, but it would be much more gratifying for the ego if you actually made a difference, right? Right. (laughs) And it's, it's funny to say that, you know, we laugh about it, like, oh, what a novel concept. But for a lot of people that are involved in political activism, it really is a novel concept. Yeah. Like this concept, this idea that, well, maybe I shouldn't put on my loudest, most obnoxious t-shirt and go downtown where there's a whole bunch of people and we might get into a brawl with the folks across the street. It never occurs to them that that might not be the best idea. Right. So, but it's fun. You know, I mean, <laughs> I love political activism. I love talking about the theories behind it and what is it that you're trying to do. And, and quite frankly, the left has been beating us at it for decades. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. All I'm doing is trying to give people the skills to even the playing field a little bit. (laughs) So what do you think are some of the uh, strategies that might even the playing field a little bit? Like what, I guess maybe a better way to ask this would be um, because the left is so good. What are some things that they are so good at that, you know, the the opposing side is really bad at and what are some some of the top things you think could be improved? Um, one thing is security is a big one. Um, we're so used to, because we live in America and because we've been raised with this freedom of speech idea and we can say whatever we want and we're loud and proud for the red, white, and blue and all of these things, we've never quite figured out, collectively speaking, how to operate under the table. And that's where the left is best. The subversion, the long game. Yeah. We want that instant. We want to see the 20,000 people at the rally. We want to see all these flags flying. We love the visual of it. Whereas the left has been perfectly happy. And I'm not talking about the, the random 17 year old who thinks he's part of black block, but his mom packed him a lunch. I'm talking about the, the movers the leaders of BLM protests and things like that, that are working behind the scenes, they're okay with no one knowing what they do. Right. They're okay with not getting that ego charge because their ego charge comes from the result. Right. Whereas on the right, we like to be seen doing it. We like to tell everybody we're doing it. And so we're a lot less effective. And because we want that instant gratification. We're really bad at the long game and we need to be better at that. We need to be better at planting seeds and working. Um, everybody wants to deal with the national issues. They want to go to the 50,000 person rally in DC, or they want to do this convoy to DC and they want to jump on board of that. And, and those are all great. You know, I, I get that, but go get on your local school board. Right. Go run for city government, get on right. your city council or, you know, homeschool your kids. That's a pretty radical thing these days. Yeah. So there are things you can do, but they don't pay out real quick. Right. They don't pay out quickly. And they don't give you that credibility. The currency, I guess, and I've talked about this on Substack recently, is the the currency that people get from going to rallies. Oh, well, were you at that rally? Oh, well, you, you do have a $20 bill because you were there. <laughs> Whereas I'm broke because I haven't gone to anything yet. And therefore 
I'm seen as less because I haven't. And it's a really weird monetary system that the right uses, but that's what it is. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, some of the uh, uh, slang terminology would be kind of like street cred, right? Yeah, exactly. Oh, I see you. You were at that event. So, yeah, but the reality is that, you know, you're now, uh, you know, crediting people for something that didn't necessarily have the impact that somebody who you may have no idea what they're doing. Right. um, In fact, uh, there are some pretty big national events that have occurred where everybody got arrested. Or in one case, there was the standoff in Oregon where someone died. And yet, rather than say, hey, that was a failure. Let's never do that again. Yeah. Instead, they look at the people who were there as being elevated. You know, one of them is now the guy who ran that. And in, in, if you look at it from a leadership perspective, yeah, anything that happened there is on him because he was the leader. That's yeah, how leadership yeah. works. You take the responsibility. Exactly. Yeah. You, and you don't get any of the credit. That's how it's done. You pass the credit down to your people and the failures you accept for yourself. Rather than saying, hey, I screwed up. A guy died because of my decisions. I allowed at least 15 agents and informants into my event. Wow. Instead of saying that, he's saying, oh, so-and-so sacrificed himself for liberty and he was my friend and it was horrible what the feds did to him. And oh, by the way, can you vote for me for governor of Idaho? He's running for political office on the basis of his failure. But, you know, instead of being ashamed that, hey, I screwed up and owning that, he instead is flipping that script and saying, well, I was there. I have the currency. I have the credibility because I put skin in the game and his followers who don't understand, they they don't think of it in those terms. If you were there, you get the currency. If you weren't, you don't, that's it. You don't have to actually succeed. You just got to show up. And that paradigm is what I'm trying to break. Yeah. And it's kind of ironic because like, I, I think the right really criticizes the whole participation trophy uh, right. mindset, right? Yeah. Uh, hear that all the time, that that's, that that's a huge problem with the, today's culture. And yet, in a way, that's a bit of a participation trophy. Uh, exactly. Seems a little hypocritical. You just got to realize that. I don't think they're aware of the hypocrisy. Oh, and I don't think that it's a malicious thing. No, no, no. Yeah. I think it's just that people don't think of it in those terms. They've never maybe even had it explained to them that, hey, you're you're following a guy. You're putting all your money and time and effort defending him. Yeah. He screwed up. Right. Right. So same thing with the Stuart Rhodes debacle that just happened. The head of the Oath Keepers. You know, I wrote an article about that and you've got some of his defenders. Well, he'll never turn on the Patriot movement. Well, the evidence shows he did. So can I, you I talk mean, a little bit for people who are not familiar with what happened? And I will direct them. They should go read your sub stack, but just oh, a quick little. So yeah. Stuart Rhodes, the head of the Oath Keepers, recently got arrested for his part at January 6th. Yep. And he was charged with sedition, him and a few other guys. And the 
the gut level reaction that usually happens when someone gets arrested is people go, he was entrapped. He was framed. He's innocent. You know, we all have to rally because this person is being persecuted for the sake of liberty. But when you go look at the actual documentation, the charging documents that they use to charge him. So that's the document where they explain all the bad things he did. Right. It's pretty clear that he had an infiltrator in his inner circle. They had copies of the text from Signal. They had uh, verbatim conversations between their planning, you know, their leadership. Right. Which means once you figured out, okay, you guys had, you had a ringer in your group. The question now becomes, did Stuart Rhodes know or did he not know? Right. It's, it's that simple. So if he knew he's either stupid or, you know, he's, if he knew and didn't get rid of the person, he's complicit. Yes. You know, if he didn't know he's a moron, right. There's really no, and, and it's not popular to break it down into those logical terms, but that's where you're at. Either he knew or he didn't. And either way you got a problem because, okay, fine. Let's say somebody gets into your group, Courtney, and you're like, well, I don't know if he is or not, but I'm going to act like he is. And I'm going to kick him because I can't afford that. Okay, fine. It turns out he was, you let him in, but you handled it. Mm-hmm. As soon as you figured it out, right? That's the difference. And a lot of people, and I've seen groups do this where they know that a guy is an infiltrator, they mm-hmm. know it. And they say, well, we're not doing anything wrong. Mm-hmm. So we'll just let him stay. But the problem is they keep thinking that, well, this person will figure out that we're not doing anything wrong. And then we're boring and he'll just go away. No, that's not how it works. If you're not doing something wrong, they'll help you do something wrong. (laughs) Right. That's the whole point. So it's, it's very frustrating to watch all these dynamics happen. And I see them, I guess, in different ways than what they're historically seen as. And so when I try to explain that, Hey, let's flip the perspective a little bit and use some logic and people go, logic. (laughs) No, why would we do that? (laughs) So, you know, people, I tell people a lot that, you know, Hey, this, this event's going on. Do you want to go? Yeah. Yeah. I want to go. Well, that should be the last. In fact, that shouldn't even factor into whether you should go. Right. Right. You shouldn't even have that. The goals. What, What is the purpose? Right. Yeah. Exactly. And what are you accomplishing by going? Right. Uh, and what are your risks? Have you gamed them yeah, out? For sure. Are you okay sure. with yeah. the consequences? Are you okay with the worst case scenario? People think, oh, I'm willing to die for liberty. Okay. Are you willing to live in a jail cell for the rest of your life at a black site? Or are you willing to go to get <laughs> The freest slave ever in a jail cell. Right. There's a, there are things worse than just getting shot, you know? Yeah. Are, sure. and, I, and that's one of the core values, I guess, that I try to teach people is it's easy to say I'll die for liberty. It's a lot harder to live in a way that allows you to do the most for your cause over the longest period of time. 
Sure. Um, one thing that really just stuck out for me as you were telling uh, the story of, uh, you know, how either way, it's not very good. Either he didn't know or he did know. Right. But I think this is part of why it, the, it really behooves you to have a small group because then you can really understand the people yeah. in your group and you, you get to know them. Right. Um, you know, the bigger the group is and the much more challenging that becomes. It becomes impossible. Especially for these, uh, there's so many groups that get their start on Facebook yeah. or Twitter or, you know, MeWe, I guess now yeah. is a big thing. I can't stand MeWe. I'm sorry, but no, it drives me. no, I'm not a, um, but they bring in these thousands of people, which again, fulfills that I'm part of something big. Yeah. Excuse me. And so then how well do you know those people? And then they get on there and they say, it's a roll call. Everybody put where they're from. Well, now you've tapped into another one of those needs where I want people to know where I'm from, but I also want them to know what I'm good at. And I want them to know like how important I am in the group in that area. Mm -hmm. So somebody like me coming along and reading this thread, I just mapped out your entire group. Right. I know what your capabilities are. I know who's where. I know who the official leaders are. I know the unofficial leaders that actually have the respect of the people because they're not always the same person. So there's a lot that can be gleaned by this. Yeah. Whereas if you, if we go back to my example of you, me, and one other guy in a group, not only do I know you, but I know if they were to try to leverage you, what they would use. So your skeletons aren't in a closet. They're sitting out in the living room. We're all having a beer together. I know what you've got on your plate. I know where your pivot points are. I know where your pain points are. I know you're having problems with your significant other. And so when I start getting, if somebody approaches me to accuse you of something, I already know where that's coming from. Mm -hmm. I already know everything there is to know. And I know about the things that you've done poorly or things that you've screwed up. I know if you've got a criminal record, I know all of that, but that allows me to make an informed decision. Are you too much of a risk? Mm -hmm. But it allows you to do it to me. Right. And I think the other thing that enables you to do is to, for some of the things that may be a lower risk, I mean, everybody Mm -hmm. has their, uh, points that are going to be less beneficial to a group than others. You know, we have strengths and weaknesses, but by you knowing some of my uh, weaker points, some of the ones that may be uh, not so monumental, but could be weaponized against me or against the group, you might know how to mitigate against them because you already know. Exactly. So like, you know, like you said, if I am in, you know, having a difficult time with my significant other, or I'm distracted, or I'm really overwhelmed, then you might know where some things might fall through the cracks and be able to buffer against that and also buffer against somebody, you know, an outsider coming in using that against, you know, myself or the group. Right. And there's, when you understand, because I I know in both books, there's a list of people you don't want in your group. And that's been actually very controversial because I'm putting things in there that People go, well, that's me. Are you saying I, sh- I shouldn't be in a group? I'm <laughs> saying, depending on the group you choose and what they're doing, they uh-huh. may see you as a liability. Mm-hmm. For instance, somebody who cheats on their wife, mm-hmm. that is a liability for somebody like me looking at that. Mm-hmm. If you can't hold to a vow mm-hmm. and it, it has nothing to do with religion or anything like that. Sure. But if you agreed 
I'm going to just be with you. And yet you're carrying on an affair. There's a character issue there. Yeah. Not to mention that is a leverage point. If I was trying to get into your group, you'd be the person I come after. Of course. I'm going to tell your wife. I'm going to, I mean, there's so much there to play with. Yeah. And if you're constantly, I always tell people that imagine your group members are like this and they're in like a circle and there's gaps. And that's where your infiltrators are trying to get in is between the gaps. So what you're doing is if I know that this guy has an affair going on, he's just created this pretty wide gap. Right. Whereas if I say, Hey, you can't come in. I'm going to take the guy who stays married. I've just closed that gap. Right. But you may decide, well, you know what, for what we're doing, for what I need him for, I don't care about that. Right. Okay. But if you don't know, how can you make that informed decision? Same thing with anything from some people won't deal with, in fact, on the, there's an old school uh, leftist organization called Animal Liberation Front and mm-hmm. sister organization, Earth Liberation Front. They used to be, you know, before white people became the biggest domestic terrorism thing. <laughs> they used to be the number one domestic terrorism threat. And they publish, even now you can go on the website and look at their security procedures. They would not work with a romantically linked couple. So, and it makes sense because if, if our three-person group is you, me, and my husband. Oh, I, yeah, sure. That you're, you're going to be left out in the dark. Yeah. And if, if things start going down, I'm going to sell you down the river to save my husband. And that's not, I'm a bad person. That's human nature. Yeah. So what they're doing is they're preparing for the foibles of human nature. Mm -hmm. Same thing here. If one of the big things I've caught flack for is saying that if somebody is on um, antidepressants or bipolar medication or some kind of psychotropic drug that keeps them functional, yeah, they're a no-go. And there's a lot of people on various medications and they go, well, how can you say that? This is a medical condition. All of that is true. Mm -hmm. What happens when you run out? Right. What happens if you can't get your prescription filled? What happens if you need it tuned and we're not in a place where you can do that? What happens if you can't get to your therapy session because there's stuff going on? Can I trust that you are going to be mentally stable when I need you to be? And there is an argument to be made that if you need medication for a genuine condition that allows you to be functional in society, Mm -hmm. this may not be the best place for you. Right. And that's not, there's no condemnation in that. No. That's like me saying, Hey, you know what? I'm overweight. I got to get on a bike every morning to try to fix some of that. I got to watch what I eat. And that's why I'm not going to tell somebody, Hey, I want to be on your tactical team <laughs> no, because I'm a liability and right. I own that. And I understand that. And I'm not going to force a group mm-hmm. to accept me just so that I can say I'm there. Right. Of course. But right. that's part of that mental work that gets done in the foundation. What can I actually do versus what do I think I can do? Or what do I want to do? Right. right. I wear my best utilized versus what, you know, feels right. warm and fuzzy or, you know, 
do it. Right. Makes me feel like I'm, I'm in it or something. And, and there's things, there's funding, there's, there's so much that can be done where no one will ever know your name, but that for a lot of people is the sticking point. Right. I want to count. Do I get the currency if nobody knows I did it? Right. Right. Um, before we get into that, I want to ask you a little bit, you were talking about, you know, like the leverage that people can use. And I think who's um, really interesting. I'm, I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this because I, I kind of feel like the term controlled opposition has become like uh, the new iteration of conspiracy theorist. Um, <laughs> um, and I will explain a little bit. I, I by by your response, I think you understand what I mean. Um, but I will, you know, expound on that a bit. I I feel like not to say that there isn't controlled opposition. There absolutely is. But I think uh, people have oversimplified it to vilify people mm-hmm. and to discredit them. You know, oh well, you know, they're not doing any good because they're a CEO and. It, it, it dehumanizes people because the, the truth of the matter is that people are human and therefore they are fallible and therefore even the, you know, the best and the brightest and the uh, most, most well-versed and expertise in even a specific arena will make mistakes even in that arena because they are human. And, mm-hmm. you know, they are also, uh, they're also vulnerable. That's part of being human. So, and this this brings me to my point, which I came to me when you were talking about the leverage, because uh, you know, certainly like you would want to protect your husband, you'd want to protect your children, you would want to protect those that are close right. to you. Um, you know, there's certainly people who are uh you know, venal and, you know, they're they're just bought off. And I, I mean, I have a lot less respect for that. Um, but you know, there everybody has a price and the price isn't always pecuniary, you know, it's right. a, right. And, you know, there's, there's going to be a point where like for some people it's their own livelihood being threatened some or their, their person, their physical life being threatened for others. It's going to be, you know, the, you know, lives of their loved ones. And in that regard, they can be controlled. And, yes. but that doesn't necessarily mean that they have done no good. Um, and that they are, they can just be discredited and discarded. Um, but yeah, I, I, I rambled for a bit. I'm curious your thoughts on all of that. Um, um, there is such a thing as controlled opposition, obviously. Yes. You know, Lenin said that, you know, the best way to handle the opposition is to lead it. And there's actually, it's kind of funny because there are, there's at least one that I know of, and I have suspicions about a couple more. Yeah, trainer in the quote unquote patriot movement mm-hmm. who actively works for the federal government. And people just kind of gloss over that or they think that, well, he's he's defecting and he's really believes what we believe. And and he's actually just, you know, teaching us all the secret stuff. No, no, he's actually what better way to understand the capability of your opponent mm-hmm. than to be the person who trained them? Right. right. So, and again, people don't think in those terms. They're just happy to get, well, it's super secret info. No, it's not. So, so I, I'm so sorry, before you say that, you, you were saying a trainer of, I, I don't know if I caught that. You were saying there's somebody who you think is a controlled opposition who is a trainer in yeah. the- a, a trainer in what? So in, 
when you look at the quote unquote patriot movement, right, there's people who um, have made a name for themselves doing firearms training, or there's some people that have done like specific types of computer training. Um, Other people teach what I teach. Um, Actually, nobody teaches exactly what I teach, but related things. And so there's kind of the community, so to speak, where people go, oh, well, I've been to so-and-so's class. Oh yeah, well, I've been to Joe and John's class. And that's another little secondary form of currency. But if John is actively collecting information on all his class participants or pulling in information about what their capabilities are, how valuable would that be? Yeah. It's huge. Huge. But to, to specifically answer your question about controlled opposition, I think there is a fair amount of that in the right. And you're correct that every single person has a key. There is the thing that will make them fold. Mm-hmm. But part of the mental work, part of the point of the mental work is to say, well, what are, let's say everybody has 10 things. We'll just use an arbitrary number. If you know that you have these 10 things, you go through each one of them, you pick it up, you look around at it, you know, you figure, okay, well, how much of a, how big is it? Is it just a little tiny thing? Is it something big? Mm-hmm. What can I do with it? Can I break it down into pieces? Can I throw it out? Can I get rid of it? Or is it something that I'm going to have to understand is right here in front of me all the time? Right. And if you can do that with each one of those things, maybe you end up to where eight of the 10 are no longer an issue for you. You fix the bad habit that could be leveraged. You know, maybe you quit gambling. Maybe you decided you're going to stop drinking. Maybe you cut off the affair. Maybe you've decided to change therapy programs so that you can get off your medication, whatever it is, whatever right. it is. Sure. So you, you get rid of as much as you can, and then you hide the one that's left mm-hmm. in the sense that you make it as little a problem as possible. Well, if you have a family or you have loved ones, like everybody does, mm-hmm. they're always going to be a problem in the sense that they're going to be a risk for you. Yeah. But if you know that, then get rid of the rest of it. In yeah. fact, a, a good example to use would be vax mandates. So yeah. regardless of what you think about vax mandates, yeah, I know people who went out and got it immediately before there was any kind of mandate. They wanted to do it. Okay, great. They exercised their right awesome for them. But then some people were like, well, no, I'm not going to do it yet. But then they said, well, you're going to have to do it or you get to, you're not going to have a job. Okay. Now I'll do it. Like you said, it, it stuck a needle in where they, that was their line. Oh, I got to keep my livelihood. I got to protect that. So now I'll do it. But then there were some people who waited a little longer. And so you're, you're basically going down the tank, so to speak, and you're skimming off the top. Okay, well, we can get these people to do it for this reason. Okay, well, now we got to go a little deeper. So yeah. now you're getting to the point where people are saying, well, in order to walk into a restaurant, you have to have it. So for some people, myself included, mm-hmm. I think, well, I cook better at home anyway, so I don't care. <laughs> I guess I don't need to go to a restaurant. No big deal. Right. That's not a pain point for me. You can come cook for me, but yeah. Right. <laughs> Then for a lot of other people, mm-hmm. I talked to someone who's in his early twenties sure. and that was a huge deal for him. Sure. Well, I want to be able to go out and eat. I want to be able to live my life without hassle. And if that's your pain point, no hassle, you'll do anything. <laughs> it's pretty low pain point, but yeah. <laughs> so 
in the grander scheme of things, that same procedure and process can be applied to just about anything. Well, I want you to, I want you to have to buy a special stamp because you want a certain kind of firearm. And you go, well, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Well, we'll put you in jail for 20 years if you do it. Oh, well, in that case, I'll do it. You right. see what I'm saying? So there's always, it's almost like that little game at uh, Price is Right from back in the day, the little plink game where you'd slide the little thing in and it'd go plink, 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 plink all the way down. And it's like, well, we just got to find the right, the right pocket for it to go into. And eventually everybody. Everybody's got it. Everybody's got something, but it's your job to find it. Right. So, so this is great advice for people when they're forming groups, when they're, when they're doing the activism is how to mitigate against becoming controlled opposition. Um, I wonder if you could speak also to, because I think part of the problem is we are definitely, I, I believe we're in a spiritual and information war. You know, it's, it's a combination, a two-pronged, you know, uh, a, a binary weapon, if you will. Um, <laughs> you know, careful with the B word. <laughs> Wait, what? Would you got to be careful with the B word? Yeah, right. Right. I know. Um, there are lots of words that I apparently I, I hit the buzzwords, but I, I will be careful. But because um, <laughs> words, you know, it used to be sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never harm me. But that that's like really archaic now. Those, those are the good old days. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, but yeah, but I'm seeing that because we are in this information uh, warfare, that people, they're, they're being thrown so many different things. And, you know, uh, there is a segment, I think more people are waking up. And I do believe, you know, the Great Awakening will combat the Great Reset. That is my hope. Um, but I, while people are starting to wake up, we've been so uh, ubiquitously lied to about so much that people, re- and because we've been stripped of any, uh, you know, a lo- of a large component of spiritual connection. Um, so people are, they don't have strong intuition the way that they used to, I would argue. Um, and they certainly don't have a discernment the way they used to or critical thinking skills. And so therefore they're not able to kind of tease through, as I said, you know, somebody is never going to be all right or all wrong about anything. So therefore it's the job of, you know, the receiver of information to discern what material may be valid or accurate and which path to follow for themselves, you know, and, you know, certainly to guide your children, loved ones around you to do the same. Um, But I think what's happening, I'm wondering if you have tools for people to kind of navigate through uh, maybe from the outside, because it affects when they're doing their activism, right? It affects what they choose to target, it affects how they go about it. Um, If they can't discern what real controlled opposition looks like, and if they are not able to uh, tease out the information because I, I'm seeing both sides of it. I'm seeing like people who just are have no awareness that controlled opposition exists, right? And like they just look at everything very, I'm going to say binary again, you know, it's black or white. <laughs> um, and so they're really not capable of seeing the shades of gray. And then I see the other side, which is mostly coming from a lot of, you know, they call themselves, I guess, the truther community. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm all about seeking truth, I think. You know, that, that's really an admirable goal and what's what we should be striving for in this age of lies. Um, however, I see a lot of them 
pointing fingers at all these, you know, that's controlled opposition, that's controlled opposition. And so they discredit everything coming from that source. That's not necessarily productive in my perspective either. So, right. right. So how do people navigate that? Like what is some of the things they can do to kind of be aware of the controlled opposition, but then be also be aware of how to discern the information instead of just discrediting once they've decided something may be controlled opposition. Well, the first thing people have to do is throw out the idea that I don't like the person speaking and therefore everything they say is wrong. Right. Or the vice versa. I like this person and therefore they're truthful. And, and there's a difference between being untruthful and being mistaken too. Yeah. How do you know the difference between that? Yeah. So. I say this saying a lot when an honest but mistaken man hears truth, he either ceases to be mistaken or he ceases to be honest, which oh, yeah. sounds so nice and, and all put together in a nice package. But how do you know? Like you're just saying, well, how are you supposed to dig through that? First of all, throw out sourcing in the sense that just because Ben Shapiro says something, I, I don't care that it's Ben Shapiro saying it. I want to know what is it that he said and where's his proof. Same thing with, with any liberal. Mm-hmm. Granted, I think Rachel Maddow lies an incredible amount, but not 100% of the time. Right. And so when you're looking at these sources and you're looking at information, it's important to throw out who's saying it. I don't care. I don't right. care who's saying it. What I want to know is, is it true? And I can do that by researching that particular thing. And yes, the media lies, 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 my goodness sakes. But there are places you can go. Um, There are sites you can go to. And it's kind of funny because one thing I do, and, and this is just me, you know, other people's mileage may vary. I look at what else that site advocates as truth. So for instance, I personally, if someone's talking about um, aliens, for instance, or lizard people, Mm -hmm. I will assign a less of a credibility rating to that particular information that I found on that site. And so it's kind of a running joke that I tell people in my classes, here's some information about X topic. And I promise it didn't come from any sites about aliens or the healing power of crystals. And if somebody does believe in the healing power of crystals, they may assign more credibility to that. And mm-hmm. that's fine. Yeah. But There's scientific evidence behind that, actually. Right. But- and that's why it's funny. But <laughs> you have to be able to, to research things, yeah. to throw out what you want, mm-hmm. throw out what you want to believe, sure. and just ask a question. And then look at this piece of information. Now, does it fit if my statement that I'm trying to prove or disprove, would it fit if it was true? Would it fit if it was untrue? Mm -hmm. Is it neutral? And that's just, you have to be very systematic about how you go through information. Mm -hmm. And it's not about who says it, it's about what is it? Can I independently verify it? So for instance, if I'm looking at media feed for and they're looking at 10 people standing on a street corner and they tell me this is the extent of that protest. Okay, my next question is going to be, can I find anything else, whether it be somebody on the ground 
mm-hmm. filming with their phone, a drone, something like that. Can I find more information about that? And does it prove or disprove what they're saying? Well, sure enough. Now you find out, hey, I'm so-and-so and I'm flying my own drone and here's the full rest of it. And they're looking at 10 guys over on the corner. But now I'm going to look for a third source mm-hmm. because I want to start finding as much information as I can to answer that particular question. And it kind of ties into what something you said that was pretty profound earlier that there's so many battles to fight. There's so much, it's overwhelming. So if you're just crawling out of your, your little matrix pod, so to speak, and you're going, holy cow, where do I start? That's another huge mistake that groups make because they want to fix it all. Right. Or they pick up, like I was saying, those slogan ideas, we got to take our country back. Well, what's involved in that actually? When will you know that the country is officially back? Right. What does that mean? (laughs) Right. What does that look like? Pick the one thing. Maybe you're, and and it needs to be something. And that's another reason why you need small groups. Because the more you get groups, the the bigger the group gets, the more answers you're going to have to the question, what is the number one issue? Yeah. And the secondary question, what should be done about it? Yeah. And there's a pretty big spectrum. One of them gets you in jail. One of them gets nothing done. So the trick is to find a whole bunch of people that are right where you are. Because if you, me, and my husband are in a group and I say, well, I think the biggest issue is the vaccine mandate. And you go, well, I'm vexed. And I I like the mandate. Well, that's kind of a non-starter, Right. But if we all decide that, hey, we're all in agreement as to what the number one issue is, now we go to the secondary question. Well, I think we need to write letters and we need to run for local office and we need to start using the system ourselves. And you go, well, I think we should roll up with some pew pew and some bang bang. Uh, Now we have another Mm non-starter because we're never going to agree on how to go about doing what we do. Right. And now that can happen in a group of three. Now add a hundred more, a thousand more, 10,000 more. It's you're not going to be able to. In fact, that's one reason why the stuff in Canada is working so well right now, because whatever else they got going on. Right. 95% of them or 99% of them agree that the number one issue right now is this. Yeah. And they're able to, and I promise you, you could go down the list of all the hot button political issues and you could ask a hundred people standing on the streets of Ottawa. What do you think of this? What do you think of that? And they'd all disagree, Sure, but it doesn't matter because they've managed to set that aside for this issue. And the way that they're going about it is actually pretty effective. In fact, I would say that that action that's going on right now is the most effective we've seen in quite some time. Yeah. And it's not just because there's a whole bunch of people. Right. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, I happen to agree with you, but can you talk a little bit about why you think it is so effective and why that is a a model of good kind of action to take? So they're picking something that affects a lot of people, Mm -hmm. affects the whole country. It's not just one tiny little subset where the average person goes, that doesn't bother me. It's not affecting my life. Because right. that's what people want to answer is what's in it for me. 
Of course. Why should I care about your protest? It doesn't affect me. Well, this does affect all of Canada. It affects business owners. It affects business customers. It affects random people just trying to go buy groceries for their kids. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you saw it just for the benefit of your readers who want to wear, they had actually created a mandate where if I'm unvaccinated, I can go into a grocery store, but I have to have an escort with me from the health department to ensure that all I buy is food and medicine. So I didn't know this actually. Oh, really? They're so humane. They're so benevolent that they will allow you to go buy food and medicine, but you have to have an escort. But wait, I, here's the part that I'm confused by. So you, you need an escort to go buy food and medicine, but you can't go buy anything else in the store. No, only food and medicine. So now how is it? my not having taken a pharmaceutical agent have any impact on, so it's, if I buy the food or medicine, then I am not a liability, but if I buy something else, suddenly I'm a liability. They don't want your subhuman, nasty germ causing hands to touch other items in the store. Oh, I see. And they want to punish you Mm. for not obeying. So now you're only allowed to buy food and medicine. So when you, when you look at things like this, it's not just the unvaccinated, you're affecting the business owners, you're affecting transit, you're affecting the economy, you're affecting everything. There's not a person living in Canada who is not affected by these mandates. Of course. Even the ones like what I was just talking about that I believe it was just in one of the big cities, it was just in Ottawa, I'd have to double check, but it's not a countrywide thing. Um, But there are other mandates with the truckers, for instance, they have to quarantine for the two weeks when they get up there. It's asinine. So that's their first good thing. They've chosen an issue that affects all Canadians, regardless of color, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of anything else. Mm -hmm. You know, we can be completely opposing religions, but we'll agree on that. So that's their first thing. Their second thing is they've managed to get the public support as a result of that. Mm. Public support is the single biggest facet in a successful, I guess, guerrilla style resistance. You need people to help you. Sure. How long could those guys have sat in Ottawa? How long could they have sat at the Alberta border if people weren't bringing them food? There's constant videos all over social media where these truckers are saying, hey, this lady just came up and said she'd do our laundry mm-hmm. and they brought us food and they brought us money and they filled up our gas tank. This would have been long over except yeah. for the element of public support. Mm-hmm. Right. It is, by the way, happening because of point one, because they picked something that affects everyone. Right. So there's two things. Mm-hmm. Now contrast that with again, the, the Malheur standoff a couple of years ago in Oregon, where you have people who they don't have the public support. They don't have um, an issue that literally everyone is affected by, or at least doesn't understand that they're affected by. Right. And they're asking for, hey, can you bring us some vanilla creamer while we're in a standoff with our government? Can you bring us some Copenhagen? And people are like, really? <laughs> <laughs> No. (laughs) So 
you know, it's just, it's a totally different mindset that the Canadians have gone in with. And the third thing they're doing is they're holding the line Mm -hmm. and they're saying, listen, we're willing to negotiate, but there are some things we're not going to budge on. This has to happen. Mm -hmm. And so they, what they've done is they've got a concrete goal. Right. And they're viewing their actions, even as small as, Hey, now I noticed some of them are putting up sheds in Ottawa, like they're moving in and everything that they do is held up in the light of, is this going to further our goal? Right. Is this getting us closer to the finish line? Because we don't want to sit here forever. We have a specific path and we're not getting involved in this over here. We're not going to deal with this. This is it. And you, as you said before, they've chosen something where they are incentivized to achieve their goal as opposed to do. Exactly. Exactly. So the, the one thing where I think they're failing is there's always going to be, and now we're back to the controlled opposition thing. Mm -hmm. There's always going to be that one guy Mm -hmm. who shows up and burns the flag and wants to act all violent. There's always going to be the one guy that shows up with the Nazi flag. There's going to be the one, I mean, it just, it is, you know, it's coming. There's so many people in in all these different protest locations. It's, I'm kind of surprised they haven't had more of it, Mm. but in order to, because of course, now that you've seen all the media has to do is flash the picture. Oh, Nazi flags flew at the protest in Ottawa today. And immediately everybody who's listening, right. Low information folks, they switch off. They're done. Any support they would have given is gone. So what you almost need to see is the media saying, well, there was a, there was a Nazi flag that showed up, except all they got was five seconds because right after that, somebody took his flag, ripped it into pieces and sent him on his way. If you're going to see, and and that's something that I believe wholeheartedly, if you're going to, if I'm going to be at a rally or a protest or something, and I'm going to see something that filthy. Yeah. Or someone say someone flies a NAMBLA flag, you know, embracing pedophilia. They're going to be at my protest location long enough for me to see that they're there. And that's it. It's going to end. Right. You've got freedom to believe what you like, but you're not going to believe it here. Right. And you're not going to be part of this. And I'm not going to be painted with that brush that you have going on. And that's something that I think needs to be done. Because otherwise, you're going to constantly see those Nazi flags. You're going to see the the violence. And I will say though, mm-hmm. as I'm as I'm saying this, I'm thinking out loud. Mm-hmm. The fact that they haven't had more of it might be because they are handling it. Oh, okay, yeah. So you know, like maybe they're not failing. Maybe you know, right. one guy slipped through. Okay, like you say, we're all human. Yeah. Well, I will tell you that I I was in D.C. recently. Um, and I was at that that rally, um, and uh, there was a guy with a megaphone who started. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know if you heard. There's always one. There's always one <laughs> um, causing some trouble. <laughs> um, but you know, it, people directed the security fairly quickly. Not as quickly as I would have liked, to be honest. But uh, I want things handled like that. You know, right? Right. <laughs> I've been very impatient. Um, but yeah, but people did. They and you know, there was absolutely no violence. It was just 
for a little bit, people were a little kind of frazzled by it, mm-hmm. uh, myself included, you know, in those things, it's always like freezing and, you know, there's all sorts of variables and right. it's not super pleasant. So, um, and they usually get started pretty far in, right? Because that, that's where people are kind of worn down. They've been standing yeah. for a long time in the cold and, um, but yeah, but security came over, just kind of took him out and, uh, you know, and they started by just telling him to, you know, pipe down, like, you know, keep quiet. And yeah. when he didn't do that, they, you know, they took care of it and it was really calm. And so uh, that's an example. There was a lot of people. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, I know a lot of people were super concerned um, about how, how that was going to go and mm-hmm. myself included. And uh, they had kept reassuring us that there was top-notch security and they were really aware um, of, you know, the upheaval that could be coming right. from opposition and they were doing everything yeah. possible to mitigate. And, you know, somebody slipped through clearly and they handled it. So I think that's a, a good uh, lesson to, to learn that that's kind of how things should be done. And it, and you know, when it comes to that kind of thing, little leaven leavens the whole lump, you know, it's a, it's a Bible verse, but it's true. Mm-hmm. It's one thing that I've told my son most of his life. He, he used to like to hang out with unsavory characters. We'll, we'll say, and he would uh-huh. say, well, you know, he thought of it in terms of, well, I'm going to help them not be like that. I'm going to befriend them and save them. I said, that's not how it works. It's not your, your group will always be dragged down to the level of its lowest member. So what you want to do, not just in your personal relationships, but in building your activism groups is you want to build people who are better than you at doing what you want to do. Yeah. Let them be the ones that are slumming. Like, Like, I want to be the worst person in any group I'm in, because that's where I'm going to learn the most. Of course, it also means that they're stuck with me. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. I always want to be around people who are better than me. Whatever it is, I feel like that elevates me. I learn from them. I'm, I literally feel like I'm like, you know, fired by it. Yeah. Right. Exactly. But because the group is always going to be on the level of its lowest member, if I'm the worst member, then it's also incumbent upon me to raise that bar. Yeah. Yeah. For no other purpose than to make sure that the people around me don't suddenly go, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, also so that you're not bringing them down, right? You right. want to, you exactly. want to the cause and constantly the raising that bar. And um, again, that's part of what goes into all that mental work you yeah. should be doing before you ever put your little shingle out and say, I'm making a group. And I talk in the book about why you shouldn't advertise that you're making a group, why your group should actually be really small and nameless. And don't pick up on one of these national banners because you don't need what's attached to it. Do you know, this is such an interesting point, uh, not just in terms of activism, certainly it's very relevant in activism, but I think in general, I feel like and perhaps this, I'm just so seeped in this world. So everything really is activism. And these days it feels like everything is. Right. But, right? Well, going to the store like, without a mask is activism at this point. Right. Yeah. It's like suddenly we just can't get away from politics. But right. um, I, I actually think that it's not really true that now we can't. I think it, it's kind of always been that way. It's just so much more obvious and transparent now. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. But all that to say that I... 
I think this idea of having to be visible to make an impact, um, you know, you were saying before about like what kinds of things people can do that really do make a difference, but a lot of people don't want to because they don't get the glory for it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think this is just such an important thing for people to reflect upon because uh, a lot of time people get glory, like you were saying for activism, they get glory and it makes no impact at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that if everybody, I mean, now certainly there are people who are going to be more visible just by the nature of what it is right. they're doing, you know, that's going to be a byproduct. But if everybody really thought about what they could do, I almost think this should be like a mission for people if they could do like one thing a day. Uh, like privately, just in their personal life, whether it's activism or just in their life that is not visible, that they think will make a difference for somebody else. Right. Right. If everybody did that, think about the impact of that. That would be monumental. And like you say, whether, you know, we always say, we'll try to do, you know, one kind gesture per day or whatever. And then what do we instantly do collectively speaking? We run to social media and tell everybody we did it. Yes. We can't help ourselves. No. And the reason for that, it all goes back to that validation. It all goes back yeah. to, I need you to tell me that I matter. Yes. And if, if I'm dependent on you to tell me that, then if you're not telling me that I'm going to engage in more and more and more stuff so that you see me. Yeah. And that's where we're at. People are not fulfilled. And you talked about isolation. I think that's huge. Mm-hmm. People aren't fulfilled at home. They're not fulfilled in their jobs. They're not finding that validation within themselves right. or within their faith or, you know, on some stable thing. Yeah. So looking to their activism to fill that for them. But as a result, they're going to engage in things without thinking of the risk because the only factor in their head is, is it going to make me feel like I matter? Right. And that is the worst possible motivation for political activism. Without a doubt. So, and that's, you know, kind of the crux of part of the mental work in the book is you have to ask yourself, why am I doing this? I believe in liberty. That's not, no. (laughs) What, what is it that I'm getting out of it? A little more specific. <laughs> yeah. Right? Oh no, you froze again. And keep asking why and keep asking what is it I'm doing and why? What is it I'm, what I'm doing and why? And keep doing that. Almost like a toddler trying to get down to the core of the issue. You know, why, why, why? But <laughs> if you ask it enough times, you get to the point where now having done that work, I can tell you, these are my weaknesses. This is where you can leverage me. This is where I have to be careful because I like getting my validation in this form. So if you decide to leverage me and you figure that out, you're going to hand it to me like that. And I have to guard against it and say, hey, I recognize that I'm weak here and that makes me feel good, but I have to back up and think, okay, why is she doing it? Mm -hmm. And people don't know how to do that because they stop at the part where they feel good. Yeah. And we have to be willing to deny ourselves that, or at least recognize when we're getting it in the way that we need it. It's kind of like a love language, right? Mm -hmm. Get our validation in certain ways. 
So maybe your validation is, well, I need to feel like a good mom will say, mm-hmm. but I need other moms to tell me I'm a good mom. So if my husband says, wow, you're, you're really an excellent mom, that's not going to do it for me. I need the mommy club to tell me. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing in political activism. Some people say, I need to, I need the, the Democrats to really think I'm a threat to them. <laughs> that's the form they need. Other people say, I need to make it onto TV. I, I'm at a rally and I see a camera, so I'm just going <laughs> to, but they do it. Yeah. Later they can tell everybody, yeah, I was there. You can see me right there behind the, the tree in my really super, uh, my big pop belly and my, my super obnoxious t-shirt, <laughs> but you know, and it's, everybody has their thing. Of course. Yeah. And if you don't know what it is, how are you supposed to protect it? Yeah. So I, I, I'm just curious is when you do these like group vetting, I guess, kind of oh, things, right? Froze. Start over. <laughs> oh, um, so I was saying like, do, I'm very curious. Do you, do you, when you do these like group vetting kind of scenarios, it, does it end up being kind of like a group therapy type session? <laughs> I, I really try not to, usually yeah. the way it works is because I don't, knowledge is power. Right. Want that much power. I don't want to be in a position where I can be accused of using it for leverage. So if I, Mm, yeah. And now you froze. But what I do is I'll typically teach one or two people, or sometimes, you know, if there is a group of five or something like that, I'll teach them. Here's the process you need to follow. Right. Go forth and conquer. Mm. And what they do with that is, you know, their own and sometimes they end up throwing it all out and say, well, you know, we don't, we don't want to get rid of Bill because he's awesome. And yeah, he's got a temper problem, but his heart's in the right place. Well, later when you guys got all arrested because Bill went crazy, <laughs> okay, I told you so, but. <laughs> <laughs> and you may regret that decision, but okay. Right. But at least, <laughs> right. If you guys, if I explain to you how to assess risk and how to decide what a worst and best case scenario is, how much risk you're willing to take on, mitigate it out, game it out. I'm, ex- I'm okay with that. Right. Just because I'm not okay with it means nothing. Yeah. So um, another thing I've done in the past is people will say, well, we want to, we want to do X kind of training. How do we do this under the table? Mm-hmm. And I can explain to them how to coordinate that. Although I did one once for a guy several years ago and he said, well, we want to have a training and it's going to kind of be like, we're going to go out in the woods and we're going to do like some tactical training and we're going to do this and that. And I said, all right, well, I mean, that's. Oh, you froze. I don't know what's going on. You're freezing. You froze. I said, uh, I said, that's kind of dumb, but if you want to do it, here's how you do it. It's okay. We don't want anybody to know. I said, all right, well then here's how you do it. Mm-hmm. Two days later, mm-hmm. I see it on Facebook and he had called it a jamboree what? and was opening it up to the public. A public jamboree of tactical training? Yes. So right. that they could display their capabilities. And so anybody who wanted tactical training could show up and get some. And I thought, why did I just spend two hours of my time trying to help you? And when I went to him, because I, I just needed to know, like, I don't care. You do you, right? 
Yeah. It's no skin off my nose. I'm not going to it for sure. <laughs> but I said, I got to ask, like, how do you go from, how do we do this to let's just let everybody go. Right. And he said, because we want people to know we're here. And he was thinking of it as, well, we want people to know that, that we're here for them. Like that's how he was trying to phrase it. But the word he actually, the phrase he actually used was we want people to know we're here. Okay. Now we know he just took his little key and opened it up and showed it to me. Right. Because now I know if I would ever want to leverage him, Mm -hmm. I know exactly how to do it. I know exactly what to offer him. Mm -hmm. And I know what he would bite on in terms of bait. Yeah. Sure enough, they started posting videos from it. They were talking, you know, talking to people. Oh, do you, you know, here's a, here's a camera. Do you guys like what we're doing out here? They need that. Right. So. And and what, what did happen? What ended up happening with that group? They all got together and barbecued and ran around and convinced themselves they were awesome and deadly and could handle any threat in their area. Okay. So nothing really came of it, but it wasn't super detrimental either. Oh, there you are. Oh yeah. We both froze this time. (laughs) You froze definitely. Um, So yeah, I I was saying, so it it wasn't super productive, but it wasn't detrimental either. No, nobody got arrested. I mean, I'm sure that someone went to it who shouldn't have been there. I'm sure they got information that fits into their overall tapestry. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether or not that comes into play later, who knows? Maybe it doesn't, maybe it does. But what did they accomplish? Did anybody leave a one-day event suddenly proficient in all the tactics they wanted to learn? No, the only actual thing they accomplished was they made themselves feel good. (laughs) Well. They, they may have needed a hobby and uh, not a cause. <laughs> yeah, which actually I, I, I say that uh, flippantly, but that, that might be something for people to look at as well. Um, you know, like people who are like, what cause should I take up? Really assess, is there something that really is pressing to them um, that, you know, is an issue they think they can do something about and ha- effectuate some sort of change? Or are they just looking for you know, a hobby, a group and, and not, there's anything wrong with that, but it, it, but it should be, yeah. it should be something they're actually invested in. Right. Not just something that, well, that's, that's a big thing right now. So I'm going to go with that or, Hey, there's people that are, I mean, it could be anything. In fact, it's funny while you were talking, I was thinking of another thing that the Canadians are doing correctly. Yeah. And it, fits into the community service thing because Uh they're up there in Ottawa, they're sweeping sidewalks, they're feeding the homeless, they're engaging in service. Yeah. Show up. And and I hate to pick on the left, excuse me, but they're really good at this. Yeah. They show up, they tear the place up and they go listen to us or we will burn your place down. It's like they're the freaking big bad wolf or something. And as a result, 90% of the country goes, hmm, yeah, we don't care what you have to say because you're acting like idiots right. and you're acting, you're damaging property. You're doing all this. Whereas the people in Ottawa, they show up, they're feeding people, 
they're shoveling sidewalks with their own shovels that they bought. They're getting together and they're playing hockey in the streets and they're singing the national anthem. And it actually sounds like a really fun time and a family. And that it's all a cycle. They started with a solid goal that everybody can get on board with. They're getting the public support. They're serving their community, which feeds back into people supporting their goal. And it, Mm -hmm. it goes around and around. And that's why it's organically so huge. Yeah. Whereas you look at Malheur on the right side and you're like, who are these idiots sitting out in the middle of nowhere asking for creamer? What's happening? Or you look at Kenosha, the way the riots were that night. Everybody's running around, setting everything on fire. Why should we listen to what they have to say? What are they doing for the community? No, they're demanding things. Mm -hmm. They're not serving. Yeah. People can tell the difference. Yeah, for sure. I'm curious before we hopped on, I had said that, you know, I feel like the rest of the world is really rising up and taking action um, and they're uniting over uh, causes that are important to them. And I feel like we we are a little bit behind in doing that. Um, we're certainly not uh, rising up to the same degree that, that we're seeing around the world. And I'm curious, uh, it's a twofold question. One, what why you think that is? And two, what can be done about that? What should Americans be doing? I think part of the problem is we have enjoyed complacency and we have enjoyed the spoils of our policies or, you know, and you, and you can argue about that for, for decades, Yeah. but you know, how we went about what we've done or whether or not it was justified or not, it's obviously a topic for another time, but we've been in a position where we can enjoy things other countries have not. And so we look at other countries and go, well, they're not free like us, except in the meantime, the water was getting warmer and we're getting less and less free. And now all of a sudden people are waking up and going, uh, holy cow, like we're not free either. Yeah. But is it too late? And, And to answer the second part of your question, what can we do about it? Yeah. Educate. Yeah. And I'm not talking about relying on your public school, which is the most horrible place for a child at this point. Yep. Um, I'm talking about reading, read the books that they read, hmm. not just your kids, but read the books, the left reads, yeah. read, you know, get off of reading the standard, you know, whatever the, the new fashionable talking head book is out, not to, you know, some of them write pretty decent stuff. But I know people who have every book, and I I hate to bring up names, but every book Sean Hannity has written, every book that Ben Shapiro has written, every book that, you know, whoever their their talking head is, you know, everybody's got their favorite, whether it be Tucker Carlson, whether it be, I mean, don't get me wrong, I like Tucker, but whoever their person is, they go read all their books. Okay, that's great. What did you learn? I, half of these political books are statistics, they're, um, anecdotes. Mm-hmm. They're, they're things that they're good to know. Sure. But when you get done with the book, what can you explain to me? Mm-hmm. Right. Aside from saying, well, Pelosi's corrupt. Give me an example. Well, her kid, what about it? Whereas if you're reading something like Alinsky, you're reading something like Lenin, you're reading something, you can explain 
how did they get to where they are? Yeah. Why does the left think the way they do? What are the actions they're going to look to and why? And more importantly, how can I combat them? Yes. There's a reason that Sun Tzu doesn't say, know the stats of your enemy. No, he says, know your enemy, know who they are, know who your people are, know who the enemy is, know what they want, what they're willing to do. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the problem that we have failed as a country is we didn't know. We didn't know who they were. We didn't know what they wanted. And we didn't believe them when they told us. Yes, that, that's a really big one. <laughs> they tell us, they tell us their plans. They've been telling us since the 50s. Before before the 50s. Yeah. Long time. And we're now, what, three, four generations. And now you've got, you know, I got to tell you, I'm scared to death for when the kids now are in charge. I hope to God I am dead. (laughs) Me too. Yeah, I am uh, very, very concerned about that. The uh, programming that has been installed, the indoctrination, the um, yeah, the brainwashing has yep. been so egregious and so extreme. And people, I, it, it's the, the the foundational groundwork has been laid for so long yes. that where they are now is so. Uh, it's almost unrecognizable. It's irredeemable. It is irredeemable for sure. Uh, but it's almost unrecognizable to uh, what, how it, it, like to what somebody else, like who hasn't been programmed that way would think. Right. You know what I mean? Like they are, uh, the way that their thought processes are and operate mm-hmm. are so foreign to someone who hasn't undergone that type of conditioning. So I, I think that is really scary. And that creates a further rift between uh, them and the other members of society, which is, yes. you know, a prime breeding ground for revolution and usurpation of power. So, and I think it's, it's interesting because like my son, who's 24, he does not know, he doesn't remember a world where there wasn't Google. Whereas I'm part of that pivotal generation born yeah. in, you know, the mid seventies, where I remember very well what it was like to not have a computer, not have cable TV, not have so many things that we take for granted. Yeah. I, you know, I see those old memes where they hold up a thing of scotch tape and a pencil and a cassette tape and they go, do you know what all these have in common? (laughs) Yes. Yes, I do. I'm actually very good at splicing cassette tapes with this pencil and tape, but we remember that old school world. But we also are proficient in the new world because yeah. we were young enough when it came into power, so to speak. Yeah, sure. But now you have my son, who's obviously old enough to be a father. He's not, thank God. But he doesn't remember that. He doesn't know what that world was like. Mm-hmm. And now people his age are having kids. Right. And those kids are growing up in even less of an understanding of that world. Yes. And meanwhile, you know, I think that the computer age, that that point has really created 
Because when you were a kid, how did you have to look things up? You couldn't just Google it and get a little snapshot. You had to go find a book. So there's so many things I want to say on that. But one of the really funny things about that is my sister is six years younger than me. So in a way, just because of the timing, we're almost different generations. She's kind of like on the cusp of one, right? And uh, we were talking about uh, the Dewey Decimal System. And she- What's that? Yeah. And she was like- (laughs) Her, or she was sitting next to her boyfriend at the time saying like, Courtney, don't lie. You know, like you've never used the Dewey Decimal System. That's like an archaic thing. And I said, you mean the archaic thing that your sister used to write her college thesis? Yeah, not that archaic. <laughs> like, and she really didn't believe me. She's like, you didn't use it to write your college thesis, Courtney. It's like really old. Like, no, it's, that's what I use. I didn't just have to find a book. I had to go to the library and use a, like a card catlog thing. Yep. Do we just not even an electronic one, like the actual little yes, card. You actually pull it out of the drawer, go line up the numbers and then go to the shelf. And sometimes it wasn't perfectly lined up. And, right. you know, the librarians hadn't gotten, you know, there in time to put it all in order. You couldn't find your book, even though it said it was there. Right. Um, you know, or the and you had the little pieces of paper and the tiny little pencils next to the card catalog because you had to write down the numbers. Yeah. Unless you, you know, yeah, it's uh there's a, the uh, art of research is lost, yeah. I think, in the convenience of just give me, I mean, half the time you can put a question into Google and they'll answer it. They'll have like a little box that pops up that answers your question. Was the answer right? Who knows? Yeah. And the other thing that's, uh, and we, I was on a, a discussion call last night and this came up, and I think this is also really fascinating is when you, you talk about uh, the computer age and how we're going further and further down. Now, you know, if you look at the old white papers, like I said, they, they've tell, told us our plans for their plans for a very long time. And their plans are to usher in the technocracy, which we are in currently, um, to bring about the transhumanism. And that, you know, those are in the white papers. They're very clearly delineated. Um, But part of this uh, rise of the technocracy, what we see is, so you're talking about your son who has lived in the the Google computer age. And now his, you know, peers are having children who are there further immersed in this technological world. And they, what I see, and this was a conversation that we had, is that um, I see that their imaginations are completely uh, limited, because I, I think it's a two two uh, pronged approach. One is that the schools are now teaching children that you you know you can't relate to somebody who's different than you, so you can right. only you know watch movies or whatever. You're only allowed to be and see and do and say this right here. Exactly, and so uh, you so one you don't get exposed to the people who are different and. Uh, right. You know, and for me, uh, growing up in, I was a very, very avid reader as a child. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, right, I imagine you probably were as well. And uh, I, one of the things I absolutely loved was reading about people who were nothing like me, people who lived in right. places that were foreign to me. I felt like I got to travel all the time. I could try time periods. And, you know, that, that creates an imaginative process that children today are not exposed to. Something else that they're lacking is the ability to entertain themselves. Yeah. Whereas I'm sure, you know, your parents would say, go outside and you could take a stick and make it into anything. It was a sword. It was a gun. It was a, 
a, a crown little scepter thing because you were playing royalty. It, it's a million and one things, you know, you can yeah. make it into anything you wanted because you had the imagination, like you say, but now I've even noticed it, you know, with my son that he has and an, he's less than a lot of people. They need constant external stimulation. Mm. They don't live in their heads. They don't spend time with themselves. Mm. They're not comfortable with who they are in their heads. Mm -hmm. They constantly need that external for everything, which also translates to, they need the external validation more than someone like us who was raised in the old school that, Hey, who says you're okay. God says you're okay. Or you decide you're okay. You know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Like there's no, or you have to fill into the difference. I think I'm trying to figure out the best way to say it. When, when I was growing up, it was my job to find a way to carve out a place for myself in polite society. Now it's expected that society will carve itself out for them. Yeah. And that entire base, it's totally different idea. And this ties back to your uh, suggestion that people go and read the text, because if people read, you know, more of the, uh, particularly the Marxist texts that, Mm -hmm. you know, the books like Solinsky, but, you know, even going way back, you know, read Marx himself, read, read Plato, you know, read the, uh, the philosophers of the Frankfurt School and read, you know, what their, um, what their theories were, and then right. what they suggested, uh, you know, activism looked like. Um, and if you really did understand that, then you would know where they're coming from, and you would know what, how much, you know, of of these are a result of what they were driving, and you would know how to combat it, right? You'd be able to spot it. Uh, so, like one of the things that they they talked about in their text, and this was many of the Marxist philosophers, um, you know, but they did talk about, you know, uh, the Frankfurt School kind of coined it as like normalizing the outliers. But mm-hmm. these philosophers talked about how you have to now, it, it, instead of you adjusting to the world, and you know, we're all very unique, and no two people are exactly alike. You know, some people may be more similar than others, and more familiar with things than others. But you know, we're all very different. So normally, we go into the we recognize that we are you know we grow up in an environment, and we need to figure out how to adapt and how to make it work for us, right? But now, what they're taught, and this is in the Marxist text, they are taught that no, the world needs to adapt to you. Right. And so that right. And so this is what you're saying that they're being taught. But now if more people read these texts themselves, they would understand that this is by design and they would mm-hmm. start to think about how we can combat that. And you're creating with that philosophy, you're creating malignant narcissists. I, yes. Yes. I've been saying this for so long. I, I 100% agree with you. I also think you're creating borderline personalities. And Agreed. Yeah. And the, the which means you're also creating a whole lot of people who shouldn't be in your group, which is why it's so important to understand. Not just, I don't want to just know you. If you're going to be in my group, I need to know how you got to be who you are. Right. I need to know your childhood traumas. I need to know what made you this. So how do we, I, I, this is just a, you know, very strategic kind of question. How do we walk the line? You said you don't want this to be a group therapy session, but this is feeling awful lot like group therapy. If uh, we need to know what their traumas and their, how they got, what makes them tick, how, how they got that way. Well, it takes time though. 
Mm-hmm. And I don't know that we have the time to do it ideally anymore in an organic way, because yeah. think about it. There's, we all have that friend. Mm-hmm. Maybe we have some, you know, a couple friends. If you're Gen Z, you probably have, you know, 50,000 Instagram followers who all know this about you, but <laughs> we all have that one person that we can be real with that we talk about, Hey, this happened to me when I was 10, or I had a hard time struggling with this issue or whatever. And we all have that, Mm -hmm. but we learned that friendship over time. And that came as a result of earned mutual trust. Yeah. And that's what you're actually building in this group, because I'm not going to run out and get on Facebook. Hey guys, looking for two people to make a group go do some activism. No, this is going to be something where I've already decided who I am. Mm -hmm. I know what I bring to the table. I know what I don't. And I know what you're going to have to deal with if you get me, but this is what I'm looking for. I know the exact kind of person I need because I know what I want to do. I know what skills they need. I know what weaknesses I'm not willing to deal with. So now the question becomes, are you willing to deal with what I'm bringing to the table? And if you're not great, but how are you going to know? If you never have the conversation. Right. And that's the, the thing that's missing from so much political activism. And to be fair, if you look at the guys in Canada, I doubt highly that a hundred thousand truckers are getting together and going, what happened to you when you were a kid? Nobody's doing that, <laughs> but it's not that kind of action. Right. So they're, they're working around it because they've done the things that I just talked about previously. But if you're talking about local action, that's effective. Yeah. You're going to have to understand. I want to know that the person that I'm working with is a sexual abuse survivor, because that means that if I'm going to, you know, if they're going to be in certain situations, I need to be aware of how that affects them. I need to be aware of whether or not they've made peace, so to speak, and crossed over from victim to survivor. And how much is that playing into their validation? I need to know where they're finding that validation. You know, I talk in the book about a sample woman um, as a prospect for a group. And her big thing is she's vain. She needs to be seen. Mm -hmm. Oh, you froze. You froze. Freezing again. There you are. And so So you you cut off when you said that she's vain and she needs to be seen. She needs everyone in the room to want her. And we all know women like that. Sure. And it doesn't matter if she's happily married and has no intention of cheating. She still wants you to want her. Right, right. But I want to know that about her. Yeah. Because is it going to cause me problems? Mm -hmm. Is it something I can mitigate? Is it something that she can actually use for the good of the group? I need information. I'm going to send her looking all nice to talk to that guy to get it. Yeah. <laughs> right. If she it. understands that about herself, yeah. she can leverage it. Yeah. If she doesn't know that's what's happening, she can be leveraged. Right. So. Uh, again, <laughs> freezing. Okay. I, I lost the last thing. You froze one more time, but. Oh, I just said we, we all have to learn what our stuff is, what, what our kryptonite is. We have to be able to say it out loud and we have to be able to say it to the people we plan to work with. And if you're in a group where you don't feel comfortable doing that, you're in the wrong group. Right. 
And I think that's a great lesson we we all need to start, you know, with ourselves before we can tackle exactly. the problems externally, right? So right. Exactly. You know, it's a yeah. So that's a really great uh it's a great metaphor to take for for everything, for sure. Well, this was awesome. Uh, yeah. <laughs> have anything else you want to uh close us with leave us with and uh yeah definitely tell everybody where they can get your books and find you and all that good stuff yeah you can find me on shepherdscale.substack.com um that's where i write different articles about some of the stuff that we've talked about how to's and whatnot you can also find basics of resistance on amazon you can find the new one mindset of resistance and yeah that's pretty much where i'm at these days awesome I love it. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me on. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.